Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Graham Connors has been a musical artist for over 40 years and he has released 19 albums as well as winning quite a few awards along the way. He has not only written songs for his own recordings, but for other artists as well, including the late Slim Dusty. Those songs are now collected in his book, My Lyrical Life. I'm going to ask him a lot about the book and he's going to hold it up. Thanks, Graham. Hello. (laughs) Well, uh, it seemed the appropriate occasion to do that and brazen self-promoter that I've become. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that you have a book to hold up because, you know, these days artefacts and related to music are not necessarily easy to come by. So we'll start by asking you, when did the idea for doing a book come to you? Well, Sophie, it was during COVID, to be honest. I, um, you you get in that situation where some people found COVID very stimulating in terms of recording and songwriting. And I was sort of the opposite. Um, I'd go into the studio to do some work and uh, found myself really looking backwards rather than forwards. And uh, then it occurred to me that maybe this was a message that um, I need to do a bit of work on my back catalogue because all my career has always been a case. You know, when you get 20 albums, let me tell you, you're always looking forward. It's just that's the way that you work and so the ambition is you know a new song better than the last an album of songs that somehow continues your story but the realization that there was no audience waiting you know in terms of a live performance i think it stymied my creative spirit a bit Mm -hmm. so then when i started to look back into into my back catalogue I recognised there were there was a really intense period in the 80s in which I was a bit of a gun-for-hire songwriter, living in Sydney, doing any artist that was looking for songs I'd be trying to, to pitch, you know. I hope you can't hear my little puppy dog in the background. I can, but I love dogs, so it's all good as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Charlie, and Charlie has yet to realise that he's not, He's not the star of the show. He's only a support artist. Dogs are always the star of the show, Graham. <laughs> you let him in here, no one would look at me anymore. So <laughs> I'm just going to keep him outside. What sort of dog is he, I should ask? Uh, he's a cross between a poodle and a Pomeranian. So, oh. And I have to tell you, I had no intentions of another dog because we had three dogs over 17 years. And they were fabulous companions, and they had a great life. Um, but when when they all passed, in, and they all passed in the sort of a, a three-year window, but we'd had them 17 years, you know, like the oldest was. I said, no more dogs. Too hard on the heart, that one. And besides, you know, when we tour, I really don't want to have to be worried about a, a little fretting companion with the neighbours or something. So my children, who obviously don't listen to anything I say, in August last year turned up with Charlie. Now, Charlie's like this big. All my other dogs have been fairly robust, Jack-type dogs, running and 
Well, this is a house dog. This is the sort of thing that Paris Hilton would have <laughs> had in her handbag. So, uh, and I'm like, I'm sorry, this this is not, I do not, this does not compute. I, I said no more dogs. But Charlie just wound me around his little paw eventually. And uh, they, do they do that. They do that. So now it's a case of who's going to go first. Where you know we another we'll probably have another fifteen year relationship here. I hope, <laughs> I, I hope selfishly that I, I don't go first, but I'd leave him without without uh, someone to tell what to do. So anyhow, we 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 get off the track with these. Dogs. But I will ask before we go further. Do we call a pomeranian poodle a pomoodle? I don't know because again, there's a cavoodle and a spoodle. I don't know what's a, a, what's I a pom. I told it's a pom poo. Pom <laughs> Oh, so, uh, it's, it's I not, should have thought of that. Okay. Not very dignified, but that's what I've been told. It's the, that's how it's all right. Well, your Pompu can bark in the background anytime he likes. So getting back to the, the, the book of lyrics, I started looking for some of those old songs that recorded because, as I say, when you're always powering ahead, um, the archive can get a bit messy. Mm -hmm. And I was in that state. A lot of those songs were recorded on vinyl uh, and then CD, cassette, and they were just stored away in boxes elsewhere. And so I started this, and then somewhere along that trail, I started making notes about my life in music because I realised it's actually 50 years this December since I signed on to this crazy game. Right. December 1973, I left my hometown of Mackay and uh, the first show I did, I mean, talk about the lucky breaks. The first show I did, I opened as part of the Sherbet Christmas concert in the, in the Capitol Theatre in Sydney. I was on first for like, you know, 10 minutes and then uh, Richard Clapton came on for probably half an hour. Then the Lardy-Dars for probably 45 minutes and then Sherbet, the main event. I was spoiled. I really was. To start at that level, the, I, I thought my trajectory was to the moon straight away. And I had, I had some really good years. And, and I guess I wanted to capture that more for my grandchildren than, yeah. than any other reason. So I started jotting down notes and anecdotes and stories from the road and it was just getting bigger and then the songs started to creep in. I, this is the first one I wrote and this is the next one and this is the first one I recorded and this is how it led to this. Before I knew it, I had, you know, two songs and about 60 pages of, of biographical material. And Lynn said to me, listen, the way you're going you're going to be competing with the Bible for size. <laughs> so you're going to have to make a call. Is this a book of lyrics that you want to just collect or is it going to be your life story? I chose the book of lyrics because I recognise that my life story is within those lyrics, you know, the songs that I've written. Um, generally, I can trace very clearly, very easily what I was going through at that point in time. So then this process digging up the past. I had I had uh, from north forward, it was very easy. They're mm -hmm. all CD. 
anything prior to that, I had to use discogs and various other to find songs that I'd written for other artists. Mm. Um, yeah, that's uh, it was a real voyage of discovery. So there's a big miscellaneous section at the, the book where you know that were recorded by by other people, and uh, those other people, as you mentioned, Slim Dusty, um, Diana Corcoran, uh, Neb Nichols, uh, Darcy Year, Slim, as I said, Slim, John English. It just uh, there are a lot of a lot of songs in there that um, that I Reg Poole. I'd sort of forgotten that, yeah. that that I'd written them. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? But the fact that you're so focused with forward movement. Well, I think it's also uh, it shows that you're adept at letting go of what you've written and and handing it over to someone else, or even recording it yourself. And I should also say, at the top, I said nineteen albums. You said twenty. Obviously, my info was out of date. So <laughs> twenty albums. <laughs> I think includes the collector's piece, which came at the very beginning of my career called And When Morning Comes. Right. And When Morning Comes. <laughs> really poetic, doesn't it? But uh, that was a, a that was a great gift to me because um, that concert that I did at, at, uh, in Sydney with Sherbert, the A&R department of Festival Records happened to be there. And obviously someone was intrigued enough to ask me to come down and see how it could go so that led to a recording contract and then I toured with all these incredible artists um, from uh, Bill Cosby, Dave Allen, uh, Chris Christopherson, Rita Courage and, and Chris the most generous man I'd ever met uh, he took me in the studio and produced four songs for me before he left Australia and that became the sort of the beginnings of that album yeah Peter Dawkins, Richard Batch, and these are, are really top-line Australian producers from that period. Mm. Some of the great, all the great session players in Sydney appear on that first album. Um, and once again, I thought, man, oh, this is it. How easy is this? You know, you leave Mackay and within a couple of years, <laughs> you're a star. <laughs> but it wasn't to be because in recognition that the album was it didn't really represent me i guess it, it was just a really good collection of songs yeah. uh, but it didn't have that individuality that you have to have if you're going to make in a, a dent on the on the soundscape you know what i mean um, mm. that didn't happen to me until north when the songs were uniquely mine i had written them all they talked of my life my experience and uh I, I guess i was always you know if i could grab the young graham connors and shake him and say you know you should have been more confident about who you are but when you come from the country and you're in the city and everyone sort of like looks bigger than they are you had a tendency well i had a tendency to sort of like oh dear you know i've got to try and sound like them whoever them was, you know, the, the hits of the day. And so a lot of my early songwriting was trying to capture the sound of the artist that I was writing for. Right. It was not about my personal story. Mm. It was about their story and me. And so it was easy. We've done us proud for Slim. I never performed that for years and years. My mother just loved that song. 
And uh, she always said to me, you should record it. And I'm like, no, I, I think, you know, I wrote it for Slim and it's really his song. Well, eventually I did record it. And um, sadly, she, she was no longer with us when that occurred. But but it was, um, it was one of those things that I did my version of it and, and I felt comfortable in, in that skin. Hmm. So you know, in talking about writing for other artists, is there like a different intention when you've done that? You know it's for someone else and you're almost in a different mindset because I imagine it's partly working off the instinct of what's going to be right for that artist. It's not necessarily a technical thing where you think, all right, well, it's for Slim, I'm going to write it this way. Well, maybe it is. It is to me. I mean, uh, uh, my relationship with Slim was primarily over the telephone. He'd ring when he was making a record. The first song that I'd co-written with Doug Trevor was I'm Married to My Bulldog Mac. And that set a, a sort of a precedent that every time Slim was looking for a trucking song, he'd give me a call. So I had this long list of, you know, My Old Midnight Special and Me, Billy Nudgel, all these trucking theme songs. The only song of all those that I think that I did draw from the wellspring of my own experience was a song called Dieseling Dreams. And that was about a kid traveling with his dad for the first time in a truck. And I had translated my experiences with my father. He was a guard in the railway. And on occasional weekends, we'd join him in the rail motors up the Pioneer Valley. And so it was sort of like it was just substitute the train for the truck. And right. same emotions of a father and son doing that. But a lot of the others were... Uh, really songs that I uh, tried to write that would be as suitable to Slim as possible. You know? And that was really the modus operandi for, for most of the songwriting I was doing during that period, even to the point where musically um, I'd always have an eye in the direction or an ear in the direction of what the artist was always trying to push forward, mind you, but trying to find something new mm -hmm. but within the parameters of that artist's style mm -hmm. so you mentioned uh you know moving forwards and you've just mentioned it use that term again you're always looking ahead and that's partly why you've forgotten some of the songs you had written so that suggests to me that that you know, you're curious about what's next um, you're still passionate about what you're doing um and there's always that quest for something that or oh, a new story to tell i guess not necessarily oh i could do it better but actually it, there's there's no finite amount of what I can do here. This, there is always something left to achieve. I'm always trying to find something new in, because at the end of the day, we listen to the world around us. We listen to music. We listen to conversation. We watch. We're aware of changes in the, the political landscape. You want to record your moment in time in a song that's really i think what most writers are looking towards well i don't know but for me particularly i want to be able to say uh in a universal way though i don't want it to be anchored to a time and space but you'll be able to look at that and say ah that's where the world was at that point in time that's where people that's where society was then there's that that's where graham was you know what i mean what he's personally what he was going through personally there's all these things that that Writing is a is a beautiful way to chronicle and capture the times 
And you look at the great writers, whether you're talking Bob Dylan or Chris Christopherson, they, they marked, their work marked periods of transition for the arts in many ways. And it was, it's really, that's the best. Randy Newman, I always enjoyed Randy Newman's music because he was unafraid to use the language of the day, whether it, I mean, he was the first let's say, what was he, what you call him, a singer-songwriter, who started throwing in expletives, but they were perfectly, they were perfectly placed. It was like the language of the everyday man, and you'd be going, where other people, I would find it really annoying, you know, and because it was, it was just they hadn't, they could have found a better word if they wanted, but they just choose to use an expletive. Well, Randy, his expletives were, bang on it created a character the singer that because he was as the singer he was a character in the song whether it be you know, rednecks or whatever that was to be um i love that in him john prine was another uh, real favorite of mine as a songwriter uh, and those songs to me capture the 90s the early 2000s and further down you know mm -hmm. Were there any songs you were really pleased to rediscover when you thought, oh, I don't remember writing that, but, gee, I'm, I'm, I'm loving myself sick about it? There was one song that I wrote for Melinda Schneider called Damn Love. Now, I knew I'd done it, but it was like, wow, I really like that. It had a sort of a bluesy edge to it, and Melinda's recording was really, really good. Like, it just she just interpreted it in a way that felt like she got the song, you know, really right. well. Um, the, the other one, there was a, a, a rodeo song called For the Love of the Game, which Reg Poole recorded. And seriously, I had forgotten I'd written that song. And when I, when I came across it, I'm thinking, wow, Star Trucker by, by Slim. <laughs> what was I on? <laughs> I knew that he loved, I knew that he loved Star Trek. And so I sort of thought, how could I combine Star Trek and a trucking album, right? So it's like. Uh, That's gold. <laughs> well, it's hilarious because he's like, beam me up, Scotty. I'm ready to ride to take my place at the helm of the Enterprise. And it's about this guy who's out on the road, you know, who, he thinks he's the he thinks he's the ant's pants as far as the truck is concerned, but he's he's gone loopy. He's had too too long a drive, and so he's out there. It's very funny. Uh, and as I say, I thought, was I there? I can't remember. <laughs> Maybe it was just the lights on the hill transfixing the driver. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it was certainly. Um, it happened quickly, that song, I remember, because he was in the studio and Rod Coe was a great friend of mine in as much as he would always give me the deadline. He would always say, now, Graham, you know, we're going in the studio on Monday, right? So it's like, if you haven't got this song here by Friday, it's not right. heard, you know? So that meant I was busy doing other things, so I would allocate Friday to write the song. So I'd get up at like 5.30 in the morning and uh, and power through and then do a quick demo and send it off and hope for the best. What? And uh, and that was when I remember Star Trek. I was laughing my head off the whole time I was writing it, thinking... I'm going to immediately go and listen to this after the after I, we finish the interview, Graham. 
Yeah, well, it's a, one of those little gems from the past, you know, that, that I, I was I was very happy to find. <laughs> Obviously, you like a deadline, therefore, if you were being set uh, that Love it. I am lazy bones. I miss the lazy bones. Everyone thinks that I'm like, man, look at his output. You know, he's, he's had an album a year for the last 10 years. He must be really focused. He, you ask my wife. It's just like I sit around doing nothing for ages and ages and ages. I think I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. That's what I think I'm doing. But essentially then it becomes if you haven't got it done by next Thursday, right. guess what? It's not going to get done. So, so all of a sudden there's this mammoth you know, explosion of energy and uh, the job's done, you know, so. But the thinking time was necessary because otherwise, arguably, you couldn't have got it done, you know, in that time. That's my story and I'm sticking to it, Sophie. So thank you for your support. I oh, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in letting the letting things marinate in the brain yeah. and that procrastination is often thinking time and, it, and it's not a conscious process, a creative well, process necessarily. So I, I always say that I spend more time sleeping when I'm writing because mm. I do. If I can't get anything happening, I lie down on the couch. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, I've got a pad and a pencil. Next thing I know, it's... <laughs> Then, I'll, then all of a sudden the next line will happen. It's like a jigsaw, you know. You've worked out musically where everything's going. You can hear it all in your head, but you've got all these missing pieces. And mm -hmm. sleep is the most, the greatest blessing that we've been given is when we go to sleep, our subconscious mind churns away and does all the work for us. And, uh, and that's the miracle of creativity is that, you can stand here and labor and sweat and do all that sort of stuff and end up with nothing that has any magic. It's mm -hmm. magic, but it just lacks that. When you go and have a lie down, a little siesta, <laughs> bing, it all comes. Anyway. There's a lot to be said for a nap, yes. <laughs> Advocating, that's, that's the method I use and it works for me. Now, this is potentially a tricky question to ask you, but out of the songs that you put into the book, did a favourite emerge? Uh, well, it's, I'm going to say that there's five lyrics in here of works in progress that have yet to be released. And by nature, they're sort of like big favourites for me because they're they're little children that have yet to be born right. and potential has yet to be realised. Mm -hmm. And um, and that will be happening next year. I'll be in the studio to to, to do a, a... It well may be my final album because the way albums are these days, um, you know, it's like everyone just does a couple of tracks and puts them on, on up online in some way. And it's a funny old game now. It's... Um, I love... I love CDs. I mean, I love books. You can see what's behind. I mean, it's like I'm a I'm a letter writer in the age of emails, and uh, now I've sort of given up writing letters. So I have paper and pen, but essentially uh, I've I've become a traitor to the old way, and and I I do it all on email, and. Uh, and music, I suppose, will become a bit the same. Um, it'll rather be ephemeral. It'll be out there as it exists as an audible thing or a visual. Mm -hmm. 
but you won't be holding it in your hand and so you know which i still oh, i guess you know people still like artifacts um which is what we're seeing with with the Re-emerged final, um, and so I think you know some people will still want CDs, but there's yeah, yeah, albums are so wonderful because there there has been so many lovely albums released this year. For example, I think well, those individually the songs on them are great, but hearing them all together in the way the artist intended as a as a bigger arc of a story is beautiful. I'm with you 100 percent because when I'm putting an album together, I'm very very alert and aware that I don't repeat a theme that I uh, don't duplicate a musical feel. It's like I'm really conscious of, okay, this this song, I may love this song, but it doesn't belong on this album. It's got to go. And mm-hmm. that happened for me in the past. When I had North, um, they were like a pretty much a clean set of songs um, that, that came in its entirety. But I had leftovers that found their way into South of These Days. South These Days, when I wrote all that, there were leftovers there that found their way into Tropicali. So it was like Tropicali then found its way into The Return. There's these series of songs that don't belong on this project. Doesn't, mm. They're not, they're not uh, I, I don't love them, but they just don't, I don't feel they, they, balance, they, they balance out, you know. Mm. In surveying your output as a songwriter, do you think that that there's been a, a one motivation or one one surpassing motivation, uh, be it to tell a story, whether it's to document experiences, to connect with an audience? Do you feel for you that there is there is one powerful motivation above all others? My my motivation was always to tell the Australian story, to speak, to, to bring the Australian experience into music. That was always where I was coming from. So. Um, I was a bit out of step with that, and then along came, say, John Williamson and, and people like that, who who did lead the way in a in his own inimitable uh, voice, different to mine. I, you know, our vocabulary is very different. Um, James Blundell was a was an early um, voice that sort of uh, made it Australian without being quite so obviously so. Um, mm. So there, there were, there were artists. The Bushwhackers. I mean, I I loved the Bushwhackers, but it wasn't my voice. And you know, my voice was is the sort of North voice. You know, what I mean, it's like the probably um, not as Australian that 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 was going about at the time. It was a bit different to that, mm-hmm. uh, but it was. unmistakably so because all the places I mentioned the directions I sung about whatever happened to be the experiences were uniquely Australian experiences and those are that album particularly uh, I received a lot of mail from people who traveled to Australia and purchased the CDs or vinyl even upon departing and Mm. then home to their home country England or America or Canada and uh took it as a souvenir of their trip because it felt let the cane fields burn just seemed to be you know that happens in the south in america they have cane and over in in the caribbean and things like that but the the australian experience somehow is really captured in that song Mm. and i should say we're talking about cds um and also 
mentioning streaming, you are a heavily streamed artist on spot. You know, on Spotify, we can see the figures. You know, one of your songs has 1.8 million streams. Um, yes, there are several of them that have hundreds of thousands of streams. So, yeah, you better check your figures, Graham. I, I, I'm sorry, it happens out there in the in the universe that I do not inhabit. I, I, um, I find the whole streaming thing so weird. Um, well, look, it is, it is, but people are finding your songs on streaming. So thankful that they are, because that's the that's the way forward. There's no doubt about it, and there's no point me bemoaning the fact that you know I used to love signing an album and you know handing it over. Um, but that's the way it is. Streaming is the way it is. And, and uh, I mean, I, I find myself now, um, if someone tells me about a new album, a new, new artist, I also get online and have a go. So it's like I'm, I'm also giving that artist 0.00013 of a cent. <laughs> but people will have the chance to see you live in person performing these songs that they have had the chance this year but you are heading for the Tamworth Country Music Festival with a show um, I'm really curious as to how on earth you put together a set list for this show given how many songs you've written well it's really I've broken it two shows on the on the 21st I'm doing Graham Connor's The Songwriter at uh, at the Capitol Theatre isn't it the Capitol Theatre in, in Tamworth and uh and that will focus, uh, I'll probably have a guest musician or two, but it'll be really a case of me telling the story, singing the songs. And I've got 200 and how many here? Um, <laughs> get 260 or 50 or whatever it is, songs to choose from. Um, and then on the Friday, which is Australia Day, I've got the big band show and... They're my favourite musicians on stage. And, of course, we will focus on the bigger songs that, that, that I don't say need the band, but, but we're always designed to have uh, a lot of great players up on stage. So that gives me two repertoire, two, two totally separate repertoires. To, and I'm, I know there are going to be people who are like, why didn't you do the ringer and the princess at the big band show? And you're like, well, uh, it's sort of, it belongs in the other basket. You know what I mean? I agree with that. Yes, it is. It's a, it's a closer, quieter song. It is. It is. And, and I'm going to have a lot of fun with the band and I'm going to have a lot of fun alone. Um, but essentially the songs that suit the occasion are what I'm focusing on. Right. Um, which of course is the compliment you pay to your audience as well. It's not. It's not about oh, I just want to get these particular songs out because they were the hits or whatever it is. It's actually what suits the occasion. I find if I am meticulous about putting together a set list to to, to play songs that that maybe were uh, little gems that didn't quite find the light of day at, in the time. The audience really finds that appealing and they go back to the albums to listen a second time. See, when you have an album like The Road Less Travelled, it's like you've got this big hit song, The Road Less Travelled, and, and it's played and played and played and played and played. There's what, 11, 12 other songs on that album. Um, you might get Big Jimmy and Felicia Dad, might get a bit of a run as well. Um, but it's essentially there are, there are so many others with differing stories to tell. And now is a good time, years past, 
to be able to bring those songs to life again and people hear them with fresh ears because it's like hang on i've got that album but i didn't quite get past you know these three or four big hits yeah yeah so um so you have the tamworth shows and then you are working on a new album next year i imagine there may be some shows attached to that album once it's released too we've already got a, a bit of a grid together for touring um We've got a show in Tasmania, I know, on the 15th of March, the Ides of March. Beware, yeah. the Ides of March. Um, <laughs> but there are any is- robots running around, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so we, we, um, we're taking a group of, of travellers with us over to Tasmania. We, we started this prior to um, COVID with a gentleman called Matt Collins who was out of Melbourne. And he took artists with their fans, in inverted commas, to, to exotic locations like South Africa. And there'd be 30 people come with you. And before you know it, you'd be performing in this beautiful location in Cape Town and then in the middle of a, of a wildlife park up, you know, west of Johannesburg. And then next time you'd be at the top of Victoria Falls performing songs with this group. Sadly, Matt is no longer with us, but in memory of Matt, we're, we're putting this one together because we had discussed the concept of doing Tasmania in a similar way. So I have really exotic location performances for the group, and then we have a, a major concert for the, the public and the group uh, at Launceston on the 15th. Fantastic. Well, Graham, much ahead of you. Shows, album, more wonderful songs coming for your audience um, and your fans, I'm sure. And uh, it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you and uh, I hope the shows in Tamworth go very well. I may see you around Peel Street. Who knows? I'm sure we will. That's where I saw you last time, Sophie. <laughs> so I'll, yeah, I'm there for the whole week this time right. just about, so uh, I'll, I'll seek you out. All right. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sunburnt Country Music Podcast. For more Australian country music interviews and reviews and other things, go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.